Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, we got a new show. It's all about Q&A. Picking up the momentum where we left off last time. Thank you so much for the great questions. Let's get into it, shall we? Uh, here comes another question. Sorry, I, I think it might be Dan. Uh, I'm not positive, sorry. Can you elaborate on what is a suitable domain for self-experimentation versus the core principles that have remained unchanged in your routine over the past several years. Second question, on the relative merit of fartlek versus occasional dedicated speed workouts. Here's my background. I'm well into my geezerhood, regularly running three to nine miles at a slow heart rate with some embedded fartlek, as I find dedicated speed workout to be boring. So let's go to the first question. What's a suitable domain for self-experimentation versus the core principles that have remained unchanged? And I'm taking a little heat on email from people who are saying, hey, Brad, you're talking about all this experimentation. It used to be full keto. Now you're having this morning green smoothie. You know, what should we believe? What should we follow? And I want to reply that the general principles of eating healthy, nutritious foods and eliminating the nutrient deficient foods that unfortunately many endurance athletes favor and feel like they have a free pass for consuming sugary sweets and treats because they burn so many calories. That's the kind of stuff that I no longer want to consider as even an option. So I'm completely disengaged from junk food. I have none in my diet. Oh, let's say I might have a uh, uh, enjoyment of um, uh, a bowl of popcorn with tons of butter and salt on it after a three-hour bike ride or things like that. Um, I'm hitting the sweet potatoes harder than I was during my keto phase. But if you're going to um, say that I'm wishy-washy because I'm going from strict keto to more frequent consumption of sweet potatoes, uh, we got to back up and have a better perspective here. So the self-experimentation can be in those areas where you're tweaking your carbohydrate intake. But when I say tweaking my carbohydrate intake... I'm talking about those days where I'm fasting or I'm eating a, a pure keto meal and maybe my daily carbohydrate intake that day is as low as 20 or 30 grams. And then the very next day, uh, I'm out there biking with my son and my nephew. I'm getting these guys into the sport of mountain biking. So I have a renewed interest myself. And oh my gosh, maybe I'll get up to 150 or 200 grams of carbohydrates on certain days. But that range from say 20 grams up to 250 grams if you put that in the context of where I used to be as a sugar-burning athlete when I was eating probably 500 grams minimum of carbohydrates every single day for 10 years while I trained uh, for professional triathlon circuit, you know that's the huge difference that we're talking about departing from and, and adhering to some core principles where I don't shovel that junk into my body in the name of training and recovery anymore. Um, ditto for the uh, commitment to aerobic-based heart rate training. So if you want to experiment with the optimal aerobic heart rates, maybe you can go from 30 beats below math to 20 beats to 15 beats to pegging it at math. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the range of uh, workout intensity there is quite significant because if you're 30 beats below math, 
a lot of people are walking instead of uh, jogging or whatever their math pace is. But it's still a good workout. It still counts. And when I was uh, an elite athlete, I would do a lot of my workouts at 30, 40, or even 50 beats below math. So that means I'm pedaling a bicycle on the flat road at 14, 15, or 16 miles an hour, and my heart rate is barely clearing 100. And I would do that frequently because it was a good recovery session. I was still getting a couple hours of conditioning in, training my nervous system to pedal the bicycle and make those harder efforts less strenuous because I was building this strong aerobic base. So it all contributed to my fitness. But that doesn't mean that I had experimental phases where I changed my limit from uh, 155 to 175 uh, for the sake of experimentation because that's a sure way to uh, head into the uh, familiar destination of burnout. So we can't, uh, can't throw these core principles out and say, I'm just going to go on an intensity-based schedule now for the next three months and see what happens because those are contrary to uh, the time-tested principles of balancing stress and rest, the behaviors of the elite athletes in every endurance sport for the past 60 years, great body of work to consider, uh, and so forth. So, you know, the great records have been set in every endurance sport, and especially in track and field, going down to as short as the one-mile run. Uh, they've been set from a perspective of uh, over-distance aerobic-based training. And people are now these days talking about the 80-20. Yeah, I follow the 80-20. It's really great. It's um, That's what a lot of elite athletes do or the polarized training where they're either going 80% at a slow pace and then 20% at a very, very hard pace. Uh, I'm objecting to throwing percentages in there because at times, 20% of your exercise efforts at high intensity is way too much. I favor more like a 10% during those times when uh, you're engaged in uh, intensity periods of training. It's still only 10%. So if you're running 10 miles a week, you have one mile of that can be uh, an interval workout or a high-intensity workout. If you're running 100 miles a week, uh, like Galen Rupp, he's probably going to the track two, maybe three times a week and doing eight 400s, uh, four 800s, six 800s, four by mile, whatever they're doing, they're doing these high volume intensity sessions, high, long duration, uh, long distance intensity sessions, you know, uh, six 800s and, and eight 400s. That's a lot of work, man. But the only uh, justification for doing that is when you're putting in 100 miles a week of aerobic pace training. Get me? So uh, I hope that answers the first part of the question. And then the second part, um, can I do fart like instead of these dedicated speed workouts? Absolutely. Whatever you enjoy the most, whatever gets you going, gets you excited, that's the most effective workout for you. I've said this before on the show many times that when it comes to performing high-intensity sessions, any and all kinds of high-intensity workouts have a similar adaptive, a similar training effect on the body. So you're running intervals around a track, or you're doing fartlek, or you're doing hill repeats, or you're doing a time trial, or you're doing a tempo uh, with rest periods in between. All that stuff kind of ends up in the same bucket, the same category of an intense session that's highly stressful and necessitates uh, recovery time afterward. So getting into the nitty-gritty details of what kind of high-intensity workout to do, I honestly will say let's leave that to the Olympians and anyone below that level doesn't need to worry about it. 
And I also will, uh, all you Olympians listening, I'm also going to shout out and say, it probably doesn't matter as much as you think it does either, because here we are today uh, with uh, sport at the highest level of sophistication, and we still see left and right, the world's elite athletes crashing and burning out with injuries, illnesses, subpar performances, and obviously missing the mark when it comes to balancing stress and rest, and very likely overly attached and overly obsessed with the technical aspects of their training program and these coaches that go deep into it and it prescribe every single day there's a certain important workout to do and i read interviews with elite athletes and i hear them talking about you know uh, i i had three days off of my training because of my uh, appearance on the today show in new york and so it really set me back and i had to adjust and it's like Oh my gosh, you know, you got to get over yourself a little bit, even if you're an Olympic gold medalist and realize that the day-to-day aspects of the exact workout particulars you do are far less important than you think they are. Whew, man, just giving you the straight scoop. I know you got a gold medal and that doesn't, uh, doesn't prevent me from sharing my opinion, especially on my own show when you can't pop back at me. Okay, right in Olympians. Let's hear from you. Brad, you don't know what you're talking about. Fine, I'll read it on the air, especially if you have a gold, silver, or bronze medal, or even if you took fourth. I'll still listen and respect your opinion back. David Lapp has been going to town with some awesome email exchanges and a lot of color and flavor and thought-provoking commentary. So uh, thanks, David, for uh, writing and offering so much. This guy's the real deal. He's fully into all the uh, training and recovery protocols. He built a sauna in his home environment there. He's got two Division I soccer player daughters going to the amazing University of St. Bonaventure, which knocked off UCLA in the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament. Even though they only have 2,000 students, UCLA has a few more than that. Devastating loss for the Bruins, but hopefully they'll come back strong next year with a great recruiting class. Okay, back to the show. (laughs) Uh, David says, big fan, listen to all the podcasts read the book, enrolled in the course, studying and pushing the dialogue and helping all of us understand further. And he also has a success story to offer that he ran a half marathon, the final leg of a half Ironman triathlon at less than nine minute pace when virtually all of my training was at math or lower, which is more like an 11 minute pace. It was incredible to be able to run that pace after biking and swimming when all my running and training was so much slower. If that's not a wake-up call for everybody about the relevance, the justification to build that aerobic system with comfortably paced aerobic workouts, I don't know what is. Also, this dude did it in uh, uh, sandals, barefoot-type shoes running the, uh, the triathlon. So... Let's go with David's question. Whether one can still do long-distance Ironman-length triathlons at age 50 and be healthy if you're trying to do it all right, the right way, with life stress low, good sleep, good diet, and most of all, training at math heart rates. Three years ago at 47, I decided I wanted to do an Ironman before I was 50. I was a college athlete. I always stayed in shape. I thought I was healthy, but my diet, sleep, and just about everything was poor in retrospect. I was a vegetarian for more than 30 years. I was a major carb burner. I always ran at too high of a heart rate. I slept too little, and now I'm radically different as a result of setting that Ironman goal at age 47 and wanting to do it right. 
This process has made for many healthy rewards. I've been low carb for three years, and now I'm a real fat burner. I eat meat, I go to bed early, and I work hard. Well, he says that in quotes, which is great. I work hard at reducing my life stress. I do yoga and meditation, tons of mobility work and stretching. My kids are grown. The soccer players are out playing in real life, and I have time to do this time-consuming math training. I guess in contrast where the people think they're pressed for time and so they have to go fast all the time. So I like that little characterization too. I find the slow runs and bike rides and swims mentally refreshing and I love the time outside. My wife is very supportive. I've completed two Ironmans. I'm signed up for a third. I don't do many other races uh, except for these big Ironman goals and these help me to stay motivated. So uh, knowing that I've talked about this uh, speculation that if you're over 50, maybe you should just shorten your distance aspirations because it might not be healthy to be 50 plus and trying to complete the stated distances, the arbitrary distances that they throw down uh, of you know 2.4, 1.12, and 26 when it comes to Ironman. So your podcasts are good reminders against chronic exercise, but are they okay if you do it right? Whew. Yes. The answer is yes. They're okay if you do it right. Um, I want to make sure that uh, characterization gets out there because I feel like um, I've been talking a lot about the warnings and the admonitions against messing up your health and messing up your heart, getting that dreaded AFib condition, which is distressingly common. Uh, And as Dr. Peter Atia said on a recent Joe Rogan podcast, uh, the AFib is what I did... I think you said 30 times or 10 times more common in athletes than in the general population. And it's also something you should not get as a young person uh, as you age and get into your 80s and 90s. We're going to have a lot of arrhythmias just to the heart getting tired. But this is distressingly common in healthy fit specimens. Uh, The articles I've referenced many times uh, on Outside Magazine, Velo News, um, Wall Street Journal, New York Times talking about uh, the increased risk factors for heart disease and heart conditions amongst the super fit population due to overstressing the heart, just like any other muscle. It gets scarring, it gets inflammation, and it leads to dysfunctional electrical signaling, such as atrial fibrillation, where you get the fluttering heart rather than the strong beating heart as a direct consequence, more and more evidence pointing to the direct consequence of your crazy training protocol for years and decades especially cyclists, because cyclists can sit on their butt and work that heart way, way harder than a runner uh, and in a more stressful manner than a swimmer who's uh, getting that buoyancy and that lack of elevated body temperature to make the workout overall less stressful. Uh, So the biking population, especially the racing population where you've been doing uh, amateur category two, three, four racing for years and years where you're just absolutely blasting your heart and trying to stay with the pack and doing three-hour and four-hour and five-hour training rides where you're pegging your heart up there, even at maximum aerobic or above, it turns out to be uh, a tremendous stress on the heart over years and decades. So slow down, you know, keep, keep your passion going, keep your appreciation of the outdoors, appreciation of athletic challenges, but just make a general uh, commitment to minimizing the overall stress impact of your workouts by honoring those aerobic heart rates and also realizing that there's no reason to peg max aerobic heart rate just because that's your limit. You have a free pass to do anything at or below max aerobic heart rate. 
but it certainly is no problem to do things below. Uh, we've had a lot of follow-up emails and uh, David making some good points. And uh, on, on a recent show, I talked about how consistency in the context of developing fitness is bogus. It's just not how the body responds, uh, as well as honoring the successful balance of stress and rest at all times, which can predict inconsistency in your training patterns as perhaps a better strategy than a consistent application of whatever your workout protocols are. You always run long on Saturday because you have more free time then, and you always do the Tuesday night track workout, and you really want to be more consistent this year so you can improve. It's possibly a better and less risky path to improvement to be inconsistent and not worry about getting the best attendance award. I'm going to speculate that the winner of the best attendance award in any fitness group, like a running group, triathlon training group, that person probably is at the highest health risk of anybody. So perfect attendance, even for kids in school, man. If your kid's sick, tired, fried, needing a little break from life, and you hold him out of school for a day so he can hang out, maybe go on a fun adventure with you or go errands and see what it's like to be uh, a real-life adult, and then go back to school the next day, I think they're going to survive the rest of their life. Dragging these kids to school when they're sick oh, used to make me furious because one, one sick kid gets 20 sick kids. Yeah, so there's that. There's that. Okay, um, so can you do it in a healthy manner even at an advanced age? Yes. And the thing is, when you're out there moving all day long, it's by and large extremely healthy. So if you were to take the summer and walk the Pacific Crest Trail, or excuse me, the John Muir Trail, the 225-mile stretch uh, that goes through Yosemite, Lake Tahoe, the beautiful, uh, the best of the Sierras, ends up at Mount Whitney. Um, That's by and large going to improve your health tremendously to just be uh, exploring nature, disconnected from constant digital technology, all that great stuff, and you're moving and hiking, and it's pretty strenuous. I mean, hiking 10 miles a day, that ain't easy day after day after day. Uh, But it's a hugely different uh, endeavor than those medium to difficult workouts that generate stress hormones, that generate lactate accumulation in the bloodstream, damage to the muscles, muscle soreness, and pegging that heart up there at what's a pretty stressful uh, heart rate that's going to cause that inflammation scarring that we talked about with AFib. That's a huge difference from uh, enjoying uh, hours of daily outdoor activity or whatever level of outdoor activity you can get. So the way to do endurance sports right, uh, what I'm saying in conclusion, is to do them in a minimally stressful manner. And if you have the opportunity to uh, talk to, hang out with, read a book from an elite athlete, you will realize, sometimes it's hard to realize this unless you sit down and talk to them, you realize how easy most of their workouts are even though they're badass. So you ask the uh, the runner panel at the convention, can you tell us some of your good workouts? And Galen Rupp says, yeah, I like to do uh, six by mile at 4.30, followed by you know eight quarters at uh, 58, descending down to 51. And the whole crowd goes, wow, what incredible efforts, you know? Uh, but again, everything has to be placed in context. And when an elite athlete is uh, running along at six minute per mile per mile pace, That seems really, really impressive to us mere mortals, but to them, it's like a walk jog for you. Don't forget that. It's percentage of maximum heart rate or uh, the point of maximum fat oxidation for many of us can be happening at 
a jog walk pace. And that's where the cutoff point, especially when we age and we have less resiliency, we want to have intense workouts be few and far between. So if you're doing two a week now, if you and you cut back to one a week, just from listening to a podcast host, that could be a tremendous improvement in your fitness over time and also a great protector to your health. So that's my uh, answer to David. And then carrying on with more David, uh, it's been helpful to hear you talk about your shift from fasting in the morning to preparing this awesome nutrient-dense green smoothie that you can find on YouTube. I'm very lean. I've started to think that I may not be eating enough. For the past year or so, I've been doing more and more intermittent fasting, going for 16 hours, and then also throwing a long training session in there. Partly listening to your podcast and doing some other research for the past month, I've been fasting less and at least not most days like I probably had started to do. I think I probably needed more calories, especially more protein. I've been pretty strict low-carb keto since September 2015 after reading Volek and Finney, the wonderful work of Volek and Finney, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance, another book, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living. I could probably eat a few more carbs than I do and benefit from it if I could ever get over my fear of them. Anyway, hearing your story has been quite helpful. Thank you. So, uh, this is a interesting concept. I had Dr. Tommy Wood on the show a couple times, and on the recent broadcast, he made that provocative statement. He was talking about me specifically because I said, hey, here's this uh, example. Let's say I don't have excess body fat concerns. I have good blood work. I'm not in that metabolic high-risk category. Um, you know, is it uh, warranted to uh, consume more calories fast less? And he said, absolutely. So, for a fit person trying to recover from athletics, you should eat, he's talking to me, but anyone in this category, you should eat the maximum amount of nutritious foods without gaining weight. Obviously, if you're uh, adding body fat, that's an indication that you're eating too much no matter who you are, right? But for the athletic population, wow, what an interesting insight. And he says that will give you uh, maximum health, that the longevity aspects of fasting and calorie restriction might be overblown. Peter Atia said the same thing on Joe Rogan's podcast. And if you haven't heard these guys, Tommy Wood of Nourish, Balance, Thrive, or Dr. Peter Atia and the great work he's been doing, uh, eatingacademy.com, I think was his website, or just look up Peter Atia. Uh, these guys are at the cutting edge of research for health, peak performance, longevity. So I'm paying great attention to what they say. And when they say that these often purported benefits of longevity, they're coming from studies with mice. We don't do calorie restriction studies on humans. We've done a few Back in the literature, the great uh, work of uh, George, oh God, am I blanking on his last name? Cahill from Harvard in the 60s, he had the privilege of starving these folks for an extended period of time and measuring their glucose, insulin, and ketones. Willfully uh, starving these subjects decided to go through this intense experiment, which would be hard to replicate today. But Cahill's work has been uh, instrumental in us understanding the benefits of ketosis today, uh, fat reduction, uh, the most efficient way to uh, reduce body fat is to just lower those insulin levels and allow fat to be mobilized from storage areas and burned as energy. Simple as that. Um, so if you have a concern about excess body fat, again, uh, going back to Tommy's show, he said, first of all, don't even think about or try to reduce excess body fat unless you are metabolically healthy. If you're not metabolically healthy, 
you are pretty much screwed if you try to restrict calories or do anything in the name of fat reduction. So you got to get yourself healthy. A lot of times the path to health is to eat more nutritious, nutrient-dense, varied plants and animal foods, maybe not worrying about your carbohydrate levels out of the gate, but just trying to get your body right. And then when you get fat adapted, just like we say in the keto reset diet and also uh, talk in pretty good detail on primal endurance, first you have to get fat adapted through devoted dietary restriction of processed carbohydrates and greatly enhanced by doing uh, fat-burning workouts. And then when you're fat adapted, then you can engage in things like fasting or uh, eating a few less calories than you need every day to uh, get the remainder from stored body fat. But all this stuff, really, we strongly feel, Lindsay Taylor and I talk so much about this, and she conveys this message on uh, the Facebook group so much. So go join the Primal Endurance Facebook group. Uh, if you haven't already, We've got a few thousand people there, lively and engaging. But we talk about this idea that uh, the fat reduction should be a natural byproduct of adhering to healthy dietary patterns, choosing good foods, honoring your natural appetite, not stressing and doing obsessive calorie restriction to the point of suffering and struggling and uh, dreaming about food in the afternoon rather than uh, answering your emails. So that's where we're coming from here. And uh, Dr. Tommy's. Uh, point is really well taken because um, good food is good food. And I feel like I've made a breakthrough in my training and recovery by throwing in that green smoothie most mornings. Other mornings, I appreciate the opportunity to engage in that extended fast. So this is happening on a random intuitive basis, greatly influenced by my workout patterns. So in the aftermath of a high intensity or a prolonged endurance session, uh, I'll be sure to eat more the next day because I'll most likely be hungry for more too. And also just having that eye on recovery when I wake up and slam that awesome green smoothie, I know I'm doing the best I can to uh, build back from the um, high intensity uh, workout the previous day. I'll be drinking more ketones after these intense workouts, uh, getting that uh, glutamine, creatine, and the many other supplements that I've uh, integrated at the behest of the Nourish, Balance, Thrive guys, and of course the primal stuff that I've been taking under Mark's guidance for many years. So just trying to get uh, nutrient high doses uh, in and around those stressful periods of life. But then uh, traveling, I feel like that's the best opportunity to engage in prolonged fasting because I think you help adjust to the new time zone better when you're not digesting food and also uh, lack of available quality options on the road then you're um, you know, looking at good opportunities to enjoy those fasting benefits. But another important point Tommy made, especially for listeners of this show who are likely putting in a lot of workout time, he said that uh, when you're doing these depleting workouts, when you're engaged in a devoted fitness regimen, you're getting some of those similar benefits to fasting just from doing your depleting workouts. We talk about autophagy, the natural cellular detoxification process that happens when you restrict calories when you're fasting. Apoptosis is the programmed death of dysfunctional cells, precancerous cells, and these uh, functions are upregulated strongly when you're in a fasted state. Our body works most efficiently, our immune system works most efficiently when we're fasting, starving, all that. That's genetics, survival response. Uh, but the athlete who has depleted themselves uh, with a strenuous workout is going to kick into that same uh, elevated autophagy uh, situation. So doubling down and adding more potential stress where you're going overboard 
by doing uh, an intense depleting workout and then fasting afterward to the extent that you might be deficient on nutritious calories over time, that's something to watch out for. And I believe I was one of those people that did that because keto has such a wonderful effect at regulating appetite that I honestly wasn't hungry ever. <laughs> when I'm hungry, I eat. I don't know about you, just, just throwing that out there. But I wasn't hungry even though I was routinely fasting until noon or one or two every day and throwing in my sprint workouts on those certain days uh, and, and doing whatever I was doing, burning calories and uh, generate, uh, burning energy, and then possibly coming up with a little bit of deficiency uh, with nutritious calories simply because I only had you know five or six hours in which I would be eating food, that kind of thing. Whew, I know that's a little confusing, and we spent a lot of time and energy behind the scenes uh, talking with Mark, trying to split hairs on all this stuff and come out with an official primal position and all these things. Uh, but I'm a strong advocate for intuition, for variation in your approach, for experimentation in your approach. But again, as I said at the outset of the previous Q&A show, um, all this experimentation, all this crazy fluctuation between fasting and doing a green smoothie, it's not that they're not that disparate, okay? It's not like I'm experimenting between Captain Crunch mornings and the green smoothie morning and the fasting morning. The Captain Crunch is out. Never liked that shit anyway. Whew. My mom used to make homemade granola that blew away any of the store-bought cereals. So I guess I'm fortunate in that respect, even though I don't eat grains and sugars anymore. Um, when you're in the grain and sugar game, you can you can even do worse than bad. You know, there's bad to worse is kind of the... The choice is on the shelf, huh? Okay. So great stuff from David. And then on to Thomas Peterson. Can you please compare and contrast the benefits of doing short speed work during a normal uh, 180 minus age run versus a dedicated speed workout? I find the former engaging and the latter boring. So um, same answer I gave uh, last time is if you pref- whatever you prefer is the best uh, speed workout. But of course, if you're doing um, short speed work during a normal slow heart rate run, it's no longer an aerobic run, right? It's a speed workout session. So um, when you're uh, elevating that heart rate into the high intensity zones, that counts as a high intensity workout, okay? I'll ask this next question two different ways, with the second version being the polite version. Oh my gosh, I love engaging with you guys back and forth on email. I gave Thomas a little heat and I said, hey man, bring it, bring the heat. I appreciate that. You know, flowery, buttery compliments. Oh my gosh, you listen to some of those other podcasts, some of those popular podcasts where they're like, hey, I want to read another fan mail today. Your podcast is awesome. It rules. It's changed my life. Oi, 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 gag me, okay? You can write that to me if you want, but I'm not sure if I'm going to narrate it to thousands of listeners like it matters. I'm trying to talk about stuff that matters and doesn't make Brian gag on the other end of the recording. I mean, seriously, seriously, dude, sup with your girl. Okay. Uh, so the next question Thomas says, um, the first one is the, the spicy version. Then he goes polite with the finish. So here's the spice, man. Why should we pay attention to what you're currently saying as you keep changing strict keto a year ago, cold plunges now, certainly something different next year. Uh, And then following up, softening up, can you please discuss the border between two different domains of fitness with the first domain, the principles that we should always follow come hell or high water, and the second domain being the aspects of fitness that we should feel free to open up to self-experimentation. 
So I already answered that uh, exactly uh, from the previous, um, I don't know if it was the previous show or this show, I'm kind of spacing guys, but um, talking about, you know, staying inside those philosophical guidelines, uh, but feeling free to experiment within that tight regulation. I gave the example of, let's say my carbohydrate intake is fluctuating between 20 grams on certain days when I fasted and traveled to Austin, Texas for the awesome Paleo FX show and didn't eat much for 24 hours. And then the following day, uh, had the sweet potato fries going and whatever else was happening, uh, trying some energy bar samples at the expo, whatever's adding up to the carb count and getting it up and over, uh, you know, 100, 150, 200, maybe 250 on those days when I do uh, long mountain bike rides with my young riding partners. And it's an extreme event for me because I'm not usually out there for two and a half, three hours, very rare occasion. And on those days, I'm going to bet that I was slamming the carbs down uh, to the tune of double or triple my normal intake, thanks to giant bowls of popcorn made in the Wooden Hills training headquarters of the Kearns uh, on top of sweet potatoes and who knows what else. But again, no junk. That's not a free pass to go drink a highly sweetened beverage from Starbucks or uh, downing the ice cream, especially as an aging athlete. Going back to David's commentary, yeah, there's a way to do it right. It does not entail uh, massive doses of Ben and Jerry's, right? It entails a lot of green smoothies in the morning instead uh, with a bunch of different powders that help me a lot. Probably help my son a little bit less since he's 20 and uh, dunking at will two-handed dunks under the basket without taking any creatine. You know what I mean? So we're trying to get maximum nutritional benefit, especially as we age. Um, so I already kind of answered that, right, Thomas, about uh, staying with the, the broad philosophical guidelines. There's no question that we have uh, no need for refined sugar in the diet, so there's no experimenting in that zone. Uh, but then with all the other stuff, open season. And since I got to tease him, since he's teasing me, like, what does cold plunges have to do with me being keto? Uh, I don't get the comparison there. So um, if I'm trying cold plunges this year, and I'm new and hot and excited about that, uh, take it for what it's worth and try doing a cold plunge yourself. If you're not feeling it, um, you know, don't worry about it. But whew, this has been a wonderful, fun thing for me to do. And uh, the recent Mark's Daily Apple post, uh, the not-so-definitive guide to cold therapy, will tell you all about the rationale and the research from the best people that we talk to on the cutting edge of endurance performance, recovery, overall fitness uh, ambitions. And uh, cold therapy seems to be the real deal, and I love it. So, that's that's my game, man. I'm telling you what's up with me. Um, so I think we covered everything there, and I, I totally appreciate, um, just to be more clear, um, it is a point of concern when uh, we're coming out uh, talking about variations in approach and different experimentations when a lot of people are hanging on um, you know, what we convey in the books and so forth, especially the Keto Reset Diet book that Mark and I wrote uh, in the early stages of 2017. And even though that was only a year ago, um, you know, the keto thing has been going, moving so quickly at such a a breakneck pace uh, in terms of the science and the general understanding that it was tough to um, reconcile a lot of these things in time for the printing deadline because things are changing so much. And as more stuff comes out, we are super happy about the position that we took in the book, that you got to be patient with this stuff, that you got to ditch grains and sugars first. And all these protocols that we put in place 
and philosophical guidelines that we conveyed are now coming out to be pretty valid and respected by the science. Uh, For example, telling you to not worry so much about your ketone numbers because of this concept of ketone flux that Dr. Kate talked about in the book and Finney and Volick have talked about uh, for an even longer period of time, where as you get better and better at fat and keto adaptation, metabolic flexibility, you may find that your ketone numbers go down because you're using what you produce, you're not accumulating it in the bloodstream, and you're just becoming an efficient mach- machine that doesn't overproduce anything ever. That's what Dr. Kate said about the body. The body is not in business to over-manufacture something it doesn't need, whether it's glucose or testosterone or whatever it is. So, We're doing the best we can and obsessing about numbers on the blood meter. There's a ton of personal variation. When I was in strict, strict, deep keto with depleting high stress, high glycolytic workouts, and then no carbs afterward, and then coming around the next day, so it's been 18 hours since I've had any carbs, including a sprint workout thrown in there, and I uh, prick my finger and it says 0.4, and I'm like, WTF, what's going on? What's it going to take to get some numbers around here? What's it going to take to get some service, yo? Uh, But then talking to the experts like Cade and Dom D'Agostino and Luis Villasenor of ketogains.com, oh, things becoming clearer and clearer that maybe I was an efficient ketone burner that was not accumulating and was making just the ketones that I needed to maintain brain function, alertness, energy, and all those benefits. So relax a little bit is the the message that's coming out of there and being validated. Okay, Um, uh, Dr. Ted Luz in Philly, love the show. Been training at math heart rate for two years. I just ran a marathon in 3.31 after... Very solid, injury-free winter training. I did almost all of my runs at 132 heart rate. I did a two-mile math test, and I was holding 745 to 755. In the marathon, I ran steady, even splits between 730 and 750 until mile 23, when my legs kind of crapped out. I mixed a couple of nine-minute miles in, but overall, I was pretty pumped about my performance. Afterward, quads and hamstrings very sore, no other problems. Uh, Felt hungry afterwards, too. Imagine that. So here's the question. Do I need to add more speed work or race pace runs to help me finish better? I only did four speed work sessions before the marathon. Or is it mile 23? Is it just that place where I hit the wall? I'm incredibly disciplined with my heart rate training. Have I been too disciplined? In other words, do I need to open up the throttle, blow it out more frequently? 48 years old. He did a 301 marathon 10 years ago. Um, Six feet, 200 pounds, just can't lose that last 25 pounds, he says. Um, And then finally, um, I know I'm not going to go hit my PR times. He has a 121 half marathon, very impressive. But I think a 320 is realistic having done that 331. So uh, I wrote back in my spicy manner that I usually do that uh, when you use the word speed work and you're talking about improving from a 330 marathon to a 320 marathon, that's not really... Uh, relevant, right? We're not talking about speed. We're talking about 99.99% endurance and improving your aerobic capacity and your ability to burn fat. Uh, So if you go and do a speed workout, you do six quarters with the Tuesday night track club, it can generate some wonderful benefits. I would say mostly in terms of your mechanical efficiency, because when you run fast, you learn how to implement better technique. You learn how to be lighter on your feet. There's less penalty for crappy technique when you're running at a slow pace all the time. 
So I'm in favor of even a marathon performer doing occasional strides, speed workouts where you're doing four times or six times 100 meters across a grass field or even doing quarters where you're just focusing on your form and you're not trashing yourself. But if you do four quarters or something fun like that to mix it up once in a while, get some of that anaerobic muscle fiber stimulation. Dr. Phil Maffetone talks about this a lot where, yeah, you got to train the anaerobic fibers as well uh, to complete an endurance event because guess what happens to your slow twitch fibers around mile 23 or mile 17 is they start to fatigue. That's where you get that ache uh, deep in the joints and the muscles. And so when your slow twitch muscle fibers are out of gas, they start. you start to recruit uh, the oxidative fast twitch muscle fibers to perform endurance work. So you're switching over to, is it type 2B? Help me, physiologist. There's type 2A and type 2B fast twitch. I think the type 2B is oxidative. So you can use those muscle fibers for disparate purposes. You can ask them to perform endurance work. Uh, so those workouts that you did, those box jumps, those uh, squatting with heavy weight, uh, those things will kick into action, especially when you're in that depleted state at mile 23. So my answer to Ted is yes, you can throw down and throw some intensity in there, especially in your individual case, because you have such a great running pedigree, having been down at the three hour marathon mark, 121 half marathon mark. Uh, but remember that you're going to get maximum return on your investment by becoming more efficient at those over-distance sessions at your aerobic heart rate. So if you can uh, go out there before the next marathon and put in a solid, let's say, a four-hour effort, yep, I like to go over-distance even when you're training for marathon. If you can go four hours at heart rate 115 to 125, something like that, which might entail a lot of walking and jogging, right? Because you're going that long, you're going to have an attrition uh, heart rate drift, they call it, or an attrition in your speed, so you might have to slow down for the final hour and just pace walk home. But that training session, uh, when you consider it on the relative importance of how to improve from 330 to 320, is going to have a fantastic contribution. Uh, just like David said earlier, he's been running exclusively 11-minute mile pace at math, and then he gets into a triathlon, swims 1.2, bikes 56, gets off the bike, and holds 9-minute miles during the time that you would expect he couldn't even hold up to math pace of 11 but he has that strength and that ability to dig deep on race day because he's been training well and training healthy so that's my answer to dr ted in philly yeah throw down those speed workouts but realize that a little goes a long way and try to throw down some ultra distance efforts where you're just getting maximum stimulation to that uh aerobic uh training system okay and then also get regular chiropractic care, of course. And that'll do it. Thank you. Questions to info at primalendurance.fit. Go check out the mastery course at primalendurance.fit. We're here to help you. Thank you for your interest. It's your host, Brad Kearns. Until next time. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. 
It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the primal kitchen wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too it's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she so she loves those sort of, we love them as well. We have uh we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the the ranch, um the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine and I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the arse out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.